0: As we start today, I just want to kind of let you know where we're going uh, preaching-wise. I know some of you like to follow along in the text and kind of know what our schedule is. So today we're starting Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Next Sunday, Dan Nichols will be here preaching for us. Many of you know Dan. He's a good friend and pastor of Redeemer Church in Roseville. The following week, we'll continue in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Then it's Easter already. Easter's early this year. It's the 4th of April so we'll have an Easter message that morning and then it's one more week in Ephesians 3 and then towards the end of April we'll start chapter 4. So it's an exciting thing and I'm, I'm really eager to start chapter 4. It's not that I don't like where we've been. It's been so good to work our way through these first three chapters and God has given us a lot of grace and a lot of patience as I've fumbled through this. And so, but when we get to chapter 4, that marks a very clear, definite split in the book of Ephesians. We've seen chapters 1, 2, and 3 are very heavy on the theology. Very heavy on who God is and what he has done. There is not a single command for us to follow in the first three chapters. It is all God and what he has done. Now when we come into chapter 4, 5, and 6... We will get into, okay, now that we know all this, now that we know that we've been justified by the grace of God, we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and brought into his family and all of the distinctions that used to separate us are gone. We are one in Christ. How do we live our life? And that's what chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about. That's why Ephesians is such a great thing for us as a new church to go through because we have not only the foundation, but then what do we do with that foundation? So I'm very eager to get there, but we've got a few more weeks in chapter 3 and a couple of people coming in in the meantime. So that's kind of where we're headed. But for today, we're going to look at Paul's prayer, like I said, which is chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. 21. So if you would, why don't you turn there with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 21 and we'll begin for the morning. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we freely admit that there's nothing that we bring of value. That we come needy and we come hungry, Lord, and that your word will feed us. That's our hope. That's my prayer. It's my prayer for my own heart this morning, God. I need to hear from you, and I pray that you would speak through your word. There are many areas in your word, Lord, where we can focus on the wrong things or emphasize the wrong things. And I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would keep us this morning in the right way. That your word would have its intended purpose, Lord. I know that you have designs for your word. It goes out and it does what you wills and it accomplishes everything that you have purposed for it to do. And so, Father, would that be the case here this morning? Would you come? Open our understanding, Lord, will you see wonderful things in your word as we study together. I pray that we would leave here better equipped to live our lives to the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen. Okay, there's a couple of different ways that we can break up our text here, 14 to 21. There's... Paul's prayer, which is 14 to 19, and then there's this doxology in 19 through 20. So, as I kind of already gave it away in our schedule, we're going to take Paul's prayer in two sermons and then give a whole sermon to the doxology. because I think each one of these sections is really packed with uh, some good stuff that I don't want to overlook. And so before we start working through these first three verses today, I want you to notice something about just the kind of an overarching principle that will help us, hopefully, in our prayer life. Notice the triune shape of Paul's prayer. you know what triune means? It's referring to the Trinity, tri meaning three, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Un, unity, triunity. that's what trinity means, that God is three in one. Look, it started in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that's God. Then moving down in the text later in 16, you'd be strengthened with power through his Spirit, verse 17, so that Christ Jesus may dwell in your hearts through faith. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the reason that I want to draw attention to this is because I think we're not only supposed to read the prayers in the Bible and see what they are praying, but we're supposed to read and find out how they are praying. So that we then, as we come to God, as we bring requests, as we praise Him in our own prayer life, we can get some help and some things to replicate. And it's not as if we're supposed to just uh, read this and then word for word repeat it all the time. Like, that's a good thing to do. I think we should be praying the Scripture back to God, but... I think that as we read the prayers of Scripture, we see patterns and principles that emerge in how the inspired writers were praying and how they were coming to God. And we all need help in this area. I mean, I hope I'm not the only one that would just immediately raise my hand and say, I want a better prayer life. I want a more robust prayer life. I don't want to just always say the same things over and over and and get kind of stuck in this repetitious cycle. We need help. We need help in knowing how to come to God. And so, when we see things like this, when we see the writers of Scripture using things like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we see them emphasize God's holiness and His compassion or His love or His hatred of sin or whatever those things are, wouldn't we want to try then and also incorporate those things into the way that we pray, into the way that we approach God? One of the things when we read, especially Paul's prayers, which there are a number of them in his letters, we see that his focus is almost always away from himself. He's praying for the churches. He's praying for individuals. He's praying that they would come to know God in a better way, that they would come to know what God has done so that they can live their lives then in response to that. And as I was looking at this, I thought, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not always how I pray, I don't always find myself just focusing on everything around me and and that I I oftentimes find my prayers are centered on my life and my world and what I think needs to happen and what I desire to have happen. Now, it's not that the Bible tells us don't do that. Don't bring your requests. Just live your life, do that thing. That's not at all it. Peter, uh, 1 Peter 5, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Bring them, bring these things to God. Paul in Philippians, everyone should know Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. We are to bring these things to God. So we need to ask though, is the... Is the bulk of our prayer content, is the majority of how and what we are praying directed towards ourselves or is it directed outside of us? And I think when we read the prayers of Paul, we see that his focus is outside of himself. <clears throat> Paul considers all three members of the Trinity as he prays. He considers the holiness of God. He considers all these things. And I was just thinking, as a parent, just for example, is that, am I modeling that? Parents, as we pray with our kids and for our kids, are we modeling both in content and in frequency a healthy biblical prayer life? For some of the older saints whose kids aren't at home, as you pray with one another, men, are you leading your wives in a biblical healthy pattern of prayer? Women, as you're in studies with one another, are you setting the example for how we should approach God? It's convicting for me because so often that's not where I'm at. One of the things that I've started doing in my own prayer life is praying through the attributes of God. Attributes are characteristics, things that we identify as belonging to God. Nothing will pull the focus off of yourself and put it on God like reading these things. I've been using A.W. Pink's book, Attributes of God, We have these available. It's our resource this month out at the table. You can stop and grab one of these. And what this will do, when I say I pray through, this is all I do. You go to the table of contents and you see this list. You can't see it, but I'll read it for you. It talks about all the things that God is. And so as I pray, I'm just literally thanking God. Thank you. Thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you are wise. Thank you that you are loving. Thank you that you are wrathful. Thank you that you are good and just. All of the things that it lists. Now you have to read the book. Don't just start at the index. You gotta read the chapter so you know what you're talking about. But pick one of these up and I'm telling you what, the way that it has this, this tendency of pulling our focus off of ourselves, I think this is what God does. You remember when your, when your kids were little or maybe kids, your parents do this, they, they're trying to talk to you and tell you something you're kind of, and they say, look at me. I think that's what God does in our prayer life. He takes your head and he kind of goes, <sniffs> we need to see him. We need to see who he is. We need to see what he is like and let that information produce in us worship and praise and a way to approach God in prayer that is appropriate. David, in the, in the psalm this morning that you talked about, we need to remember that God is not only loving and gentle, and kind, and patient. But he is powerful, (laughs) mighty, and strong. And we, we put all those things together and see who God is. That is who we are praying to. And we need to remember that in our prayer life. Now, this is not the main point of the text, but you know what? We're a new church. And I don't want to gloss over this stuff as we go on. I don't assume that everyone's at the same place and that everyone has this rock star prayer life, whatever that would mean. We need help here. I need help here. So pick up one of those books, use that. It's not a book on prayer, it's a book on God, (laughs) which turns into a book on prayer, right? Because that's how we find out who God is. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. And I would just want to see two different things. We're going to see, number one, who Paul prays to. And we might think this is super obvious, but in the context of Ephesus, where there was hundreds of gods, it is very important for Paul to clarify who it is he is directing his prayer to. So that's number one, who Paul prays to. Secondly, we're going to see what Paul prays for. And we're only going to get through about a third of that, and when we come back in a couple weeks, we will continue that second point of what Paul prays for. So, let's look at verse 14. Number one, this is who Paul's praying to. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul starts in verse 14 the same way that he started in the beginning of the chapter. Remember, for this reason, but only earlier, he interrupts himself. And he takes this 12-verse detour. Now, he doesn't do that. He continues to talk about the reason. Remember, to see that right away? For this reason, I bow my knee. And I think... I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago or maybe it was last week that I think when he says for this reason we can look back on everything that Paul has said especially starting in chapter 2 verse 11 this is all still in that same theme of unity and being brought together and getting rid of the distinction and being one in Christ he's still in that thought process through the end of chapter 3 so I think for this reason we can go back and pick up some of the highlights for what reason well God is near. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have redemption through Jesus' blood. Believers have peace with God. That was chapter 2, verses 14, 15, 17. And we have access to God by the Spirit. These are some of the things, I think, that's in Paul's mind when he says, for this reason, okay? So he says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. All throughout the Bible, and and even in secular history, in world history, we see that when someone bows, what's happening? If you come into the presence of a king or a ruler or something, by bowing down, you are acknowledging that you are not on the same level as that person as far as whatever the context may be, status or authority or position or whatever. It's an acknowledgement that you are below that person, or that that person is above you, if you want to put it positively. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the humility that Paul demonstrates in his ministry, right? He's, I'm the least of all the saints, but God gave me grace. We talked about all that. And I think we see, again, his humility in the way that he prays, and the way that he approaches God. He's not presumptuous. He doesn't come to God and be like, hey, what's up, man? He knows who God is. He puts himself under. He prostrates Himself and goes below, knowing who God is, knowing his holiness, knowing the sinfulness of his own heart, he bows his knee and i don 't think this is only metaphorical i don 't think this is just an illustrative word he used. I believe Paul physically knelt down i 'm not saying that is a command i 'm not saying we have to do that when we pray, but I think paul 's knowledge of god think think about what Paul saw for one thing he had the revelation on the road to Damascus but then he writes to the Corinthian church about this vision that God gave him into the very presence of God. Think of what he knew and because of those things he bows to God and puts himself under God's authority. He takes a humble posture recognizing who he is and who he is praying to. Okay, so now we can ask the question who is he praying to? We know what he's doing but who is he praying to? He's praying to God, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. First, let's talk about the significance of being named. In Genesis chapter 2, God gives to Adam dominion and authority over the created universe. And how do we see that dominion and authority being expressed? Adam names the animals. And we know from other places in the Bible that naming something or renaming something is hugely significant. When God calls Abram, he changes his name. When he calls Jacob, he changes his name. Right? This this is a big theme in the Bible. What happens when a man and a woman get married? Usually, there's a name change, right? When a couple gets married, the wife generally takes the name of her husband. God has, in his grace, given men the primary responsibility to shepherd their wives and the wife leaves her old name behind. She is now identifying with the care and protection and responsibility and authority that God has given to the husband and puts herself there in the way that that gets signified, easy for you to say, signified, I can't even talk this morning, she changes her name. Let's just leave it at that. Is, that. is that good for us? I don't know what's going on. But that's, that's what happens. And I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing here in Ephesians. When Paul says that every family has been named, he's telling them that even though in Ephesus there are, like I said, hundreds of gods. And this is how people would identify themselves. Like think about us right now. We are Christians Those of us who are in Christ, we belong to Christ. We gather together on Sundays with other Christians. That's part of our identity. It should be the largest part of our identity. But in Ephesus, the same thing was going on with false gods. So the people who worshipped Apollos or... Aphrodite or whoever these gods were, Artemis was a big one. That was their identity. So by Paul saying, look, I'm praying not to these other gods, but to the God whom everybody is named from, shows God's sovereignty, his power, his ability to rename, to re-identify a person. That's the God that he's praying to. And that's what happens to us. We have a new name When you are united to Christ, you are a Christian, a Christian. We are named from God. Paul says later in Ephesians 4, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's making a point about the authority of God. That's what I think he's doing. Now, we probably kind of understand this uh, uh, families on earth, we get that, uh, we have a category for that, but what about the families in heaven, right? Paul says that from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So what's going on there? Well, I don't think there was anything weird like a half angel, half human type thing. You wouldn't believe some of the stuff that people come up with when you read these texts. It's like, well, never thought of that one before. It's not that. There's nothing weird going on. I think this can easily be understood as referring, maybe you've heard these terms, church militant and church triumphant. Nope? Okay, here we go. Church militant means the believers on earth alive right now, fighting the good fight of faith, running the race that is set before us, working, striving, trusting God, living our lives. We are in action Church triumphant would be those saints who have already gone before us, who are in heaven, who are in the presence of God. I don't think there's anything really weird going on right here. John Stott says it this way, The addition of the words in heaven and on earth indicate that the church militant on earth and the church triumphant in heaven, though separated by death, are nevertheless two parts of the one great family of God. So when Paul says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth are named. Again, I think we are meant to see the overall supremacy of God over everything. There is no part of his creation or that used to be part of his creation that does not come under his authority and his care and his protection. So that's number one, who Paul prays to. Now, let's start number two what Paul prays for. And we're going to, like I said, start this this morning. We we'll can come back to this in a couple of weeks. But let's look at verse 16. Ephesians 3 verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. If you remember the prayer of Paul from chapter 1, he prays that the Ephesians would have An expanded awareness towards the end of chapter 1, he's saying that you would know the power of God, that you would see it and observe it. Do you remember that? Paul is praying not only here that they would be aware of God's power, kind of in an observatory kind of way, but that they would experience God's power through this strengthening that he's praying for. This happens through the agency of the Holy Spirit, and rather than being kind of a surface level type of strengthening. He prays for it to go all the way down to the inner man, which is referring to the soul, the heart, the meat of who you are. That's what Paul's praying here for these strengthening. Now as we look at verse 16, the thing that grounds Paul's request, the thing that gives him the ability to ask for this, is the riches of God's Glory. You see that? That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. And on and on, Paul will go. So, what is the glory of God, and why um, is glory made to be the ground or the kind of the foundation for what Paul is asking for here? We talked about this a little bit at the conference last Saturday. And you can listen to that on the website if you want to. But one of the ways we should think about the glory of God, and the Bible talks about it in many ways. It's actually a very hard word to define because the Bible uses it in several different contexts. But for our purposes here, the glory of God is the public, visible display, the manifestation of his perfections. So when the holiness, the splendor, the worth of God, go public in a way that is observable, we call that his glory. And when we consider this passage, it's not as if God possesses a small amount of this. Paul is using descriptive words like crazy in Ephesians. We've seen this several times. And when he talks about the riches, he used the same word in chapter 2 to talk about God's grace. Remember, the riches of God's grace and kindness. Or chapter 1, he talks about the value of our inheritance, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. I think the thing that Paul is communicating, and we talked about this before, is that there is no lack in God. None. None. There's no shortage of grace. There's no withholding of anything. The point of Paul saying riches of glory is to say that it is endless. And he uses that word to help us understand that. God isn't short on grace. He's not short on strength. And he possesses in himself everything that we need to be strengthened. Isn't it encouraging that Paul prays this way? What if Paul had written this and he's sitting there and he goes, Lord, I just pray that these believers would be strengthened according to their abilities. Well, that would be pretty hopeless. As you and I both know, we aren't that great. We don't have this unending supply of strength. We don't have a never-ending supply of energy or ability or anything else. Paul knows this. Because he knows the weakness of his own heart, that's why he says, strengthen them, not according to their own ability, not according to their own worth, not according to what they think, but strengthen them according to your power, your glory, which is endless. Right when I was working on this part of my sermon, a friend of mine stopped into the office and they were just dealing with uh, anxiety and fear and some of these kinds of things. And what, what do you suppose I told them? What would, be, what would you tell someone in that situation if this was fresh in your mind? Should I tell them, well, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you're struggling with this, but if you just work a little harder, if you can just kind of pull yourself up and try again and, and get after it, that's worldly talk. We're not of the world, we are of Christ. And so what you tell someone is that, you know what, Let's pray right now. And I'm going to pray that God would strengthen you not according to your ability, not according to your strength, but according to his strength and his power. That's what we need. That's the hope that you and I have is that God possesses everything that we need. He is our strength, our hope, our power. And this is all over the Bible. This isn't just in Paul. Think back to the Psalms. There was two that came to mind specifically. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It doesn't come from you. It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He will not allow your foot to slip. Or one of the greatest passages, you know this, Psalm 73 my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. What an encouragement. Now I know we're not, we're not always in this place where we need this, but oftentimes don't you find yourself in a spot where it's just like you come to the end of it and you just don't feel like you have anything left to give and you run out. The point of Paul saying In verse 16, that according to the riches of God's glory, would he grant you to be strengthened with power? The point of that is to give us hope. We need hope. We need to know that there's something bigger than you and I. There's something that can supply what we need. There's there's a person. It's not just a thing. It's It's a person that we can know. And so Paul prays that we would be strengthened through the riches of God's glory. I think one of the ways he says this too, one of the reasons, is that when we live our lives in a way that is very clearly reliant on God, God gets the credit for that. When we live our lives in a way that shows that we're kind of drawing on our own strength, we're kind of... uh, going on our own resolve, we can get credit for that. Right? If I work and I accomplish, I get the credit. If God works and he's the one who accomplishes, he gets the credit. So I think one of the reasons that Paul includes this or says it this way is to make sure that God gets the glory for your life. We'll talk about that a little bit when we close in a few minutes. Let's look at the last part of verse 16 now. Paul prays that God would strengthen us, these Ephesian believers and us, through his spirit in our inner being. Okay, so the the inner man, the inner being is a phrase that Paul uses oftentimes in his letters and it's, like I said, referring to what's going on inside you. This isn't a call for physical strength. This is not a call for bodily health. This is a prayer that we in our spiritual state would be strengthened, fortified. I love that word, fortified. It's solid, it's rock hard. We need to be strengthened through this work. A couple different examples. I just want to show that this isn't isolated in this passage. I think it's helpful to see that when the writers of the Bible use language, it's not always just this isolated thing. When we see it spread across the pages of Scripture, we can kind of start to see how things fit together, how they work in harmony together. So listen to just a couple other passages. Colossians 1, in verse 10, Paul says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, patience, and joy. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, You then, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And again, I I repeat this to say, We all need to hear this right now. We need to hear that strength is available to us through Christ, through the Spirit of God. And when we come back to this text in a couple of weeks, we're going to see why we need to be strengthened. So we're stopping at kind of an awkward point, but that's okay. Because when we come back, we're going to see these reasons why we need to be strengthened, and it might not be what you think. And so... Two weeks from now, we'll come back to this and see the reason why. But for this morning, I want to apply this in two different ways. I want to take these verses and give us two different ways of living. These are two living applications. So first of all, live in light of your new name. Remember, as Christians, we have taken on a new name, a new identity. The New Testament talks often about leaving the old way behind and walking in newness of life. So, to read here, that every family in heaven and on earth has been named by God, and we talked about that being a way of God demonstrating His care, providence, authority over His people. Live in light of your new name. The old has gone. And I know it is very tempting to let past experience, past things that used to motivate you, things that used to steer you in a certain direction, it's easy to let that creep back in. But that's not who you are anymore in Christ. Live in light of your new name. If you are in Christ, you are his, he is yours, you have a new life. Live in light of your new name. Second, live in light of God's strength. Probably one of the first Proverbs I ever memorized, probably in Awana, was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. When we live in light of God's strength, it is a turning away from our own self, our own resources, our own abilities that we may think that we have, and it is coming to God empty-handed and saying, I need you to direct my path. I need you to guide my life. I turn from myself and I trust in you. Live in light of God's strength. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. Thank you for showing us, Lord, that in your Providence, you have made the world in such a way that we can now come into newness of life with you. Thank you that we do not have to rely on ourselves; that you do not hold out an empty promise to us, Lord, but the promise is that if we come to you in faith, you will not turn us out, but you will strengthen us through your spirit. And so, God, would you make this a reality in our hearts this morning? All of us need strengthening. All of us need fortitude. All of us need a firm foundation to stand on and that is only found in you. And so Lord, even now as we come to the table and as we celebrate what you have done through Christ, I pray that our confidence would grow knowing that it is all of work of your grace. We thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.